He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Those words were written by a man named Jim Elliott when he was a college student in 1949. Seven years later, Jim Elliott and a group of other missionaries found themselves in a river where they landed a plane in Ecuador. They'd been there for several weeks, working to make contact with a group of natives uh, who had had limited interaction with outsiders. They flew the planes over and dropped gifts, ribbons, cooking pots, things like that. Uh, they would shout from the side of the plane, we're your friends, we're here to befriend you. And after time, their energy began to show some fruit. One day as they were there waiting for the natives to come, a few of them did. And they exchanged some other gifts and spent time trying to cultivate trust because these folks had met outsiders before, but they were not people worthy of trust. One Sunday afternoon, Jim and the others were there waiting to see if the natives would come and uh, visit with them and Again, this time, however, it was a different group that came out, same tribe, different group of people. And this group had not had the opportunity to build some trust. And this group came not with gifts, but with their spears. And that day, the blood of those missionaries flowed through the waters of that river in Ecuador. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That sentence gets at risk and reward, doesn't it? What are we willing to risk? And are we willing to risk what Jesus asks in order to gain the reward that he offers with confidence that he gives it? That's the issue that comes up in 1 Corinthians 15 in the passage we read today. Paul wants his recipients to be thinking about what it takes to follow Jesus, what it means to be surrendered to him, what it means to die to themselves for the sake of Jesus, and what that means in terms of hope. And the lives of those missionaries in Ecuador in the mid-50s embody the principle that Paul wants the Corinthians and us to embrace. The risk of following Jesus pales beside the reward of resurrection. That's the bottom line. The risk involved in following Jesus pales alongside the reward of re resurrection. Now for Paul, he's trying with all his might to persuade the Corinthians of the future resurrection of the body. That's what this whole chapter is about. We've been working through it for several weeks now, getting a sense for the apostle's thought and the way he thinks and the way he envisions Christian hope and the way he envisions our future. And they're on the same page with Jesus' resurrection. They get Easter, they understand that, and they affirm that. But they haven't connected the dot from Jesus' resurrection in the past to their resurrection in the future. That's the piece that Paul is trying to help them understand and the thing he's trying to connect. And he brings up his own sufferings and the risks he takes because he's trying to make the point of, uh, that comes with this question. 
Why risk death if Jesus doesn't raise the dead? That's where Paul is. That's the question he wants them to reckon with. And it's the question he wants us to reckon with as well. Why risk death if Jesus doesn't raise the dead? Like if there's no, if there's no resurrection out there, let's, let's do a little risk analysis and kind of take it easy on some, some, some things, you know. Why get on a plane and go overseas? Or why take the chance of talking to somebody, a neighbor, a coworker about Jesus? What will they say? What will they think? How will they treat me? Is it going to damage my relationship with them? Why would I take the risk? And Paul wants to come along and say, you take the risk because the reward makes the risk. It's not even a risk anymore. Pales in comparison. So Paul wants them to understand and embrace that following Jesus is risky. It's risky. And so he begins to catalog his own, uh, the danger that he's experienced in his own sufferings for Jesus. Why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour if the dead are not raised? Why would we do that? Why would we risk our lives if Jesus doesn't raise the dead? I die every day, Paul says. That is as certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting of you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it if the dead are not raised? And so he's using his own life in the argument as an example of what he wants to see in the recipients. He said, why would I risk my life if the dead are not raised? You all aren't believing in the future resurrection. My life should be evidence for that hope. And so he tells them about his sufferings, about how he's faced obstacles. He talks about fighting wild animals in Ephesus. This is one of those things the scholars debate, whether or not uh, they were you know, real wild animals in an arena kind of thing, or whether he's using that language metaphorically for people who opposed him in Ephesus. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. The point is Paul was in danger. He was facing opposition. He was willing to take risks in order to follow Jesus. Now, if you keep on reading past 1 Corinthians and read the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he goes into even more detail in the letter because they were looking at his sufferings and they had some other preachers who were kind of, you know, the glamour preachers? Kind of with a big smile, maybe a TV show or something like that. They liked those kind of guys. And there were a couple of those hanging around, super apostles is what they called them. And uh, they're saying, Paul, you're not as shiny and as glorious as these guys. Why don't you be more like them? And Paul says, let me tell you about what it means to follow Jesus and be his representative. He was a crucified Lord after all. And let me tell you how I've suffered for you and for the gospel. So he begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly and unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. They haven't got the point by the end of 1 Corinthians. And so he wants to go into more depth about what he has sacrificed and risked for the sake of the gospel. We despaired of life itself. One New Testament scholar reflects that it almost sounds like he's dealing with some kind of severe, maybe chronic depression. I mean, maybe you've been in this kind of place and you say, Paul, I identify with that, where you despair of life. I mean, this is a dark place Paul has gotten himself into because he loves Jesus and he's following the Lord. We felt we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And so you can imagine what it's like for Paul. You can imagine what it's like when he's praying and he's by himself and he's saying, Jesus, I've given everything for you. I was an up-and-comer. I was climbing the ladder. I had it all going for me and I, I gave it all up. I took a risk. 
to plant churches all over the place. And I keep I've giving my life to it and I'm doing everything I can and I keep running into dead end after dead end after dead end and doors get slammed in my faces and in my face and I'm, I'm, I'm facing opposition, I'm facing antagonism, the gospel's not growing the way I want it to. And you can feel this, just this despair all over the place with Paul. And in that moment where he is counting the cost, isn't he? <laughs> he is reflecting on the risk and the danger. In that moment, he says, but I get it, Jesus, that I'm in this place so that I will not rely on myself, but on the God who raises the dead. Did you hear that? When Paul is struggling with dark, in the dark night of his soul, he turns to the doctrine of the resurrection. I feel like I'm dying. That means I need a God who raises the dead. Brings life out of death. I need you to show up, Jesus. And so Paul's logic for the Corinthians is, look, why would I do all that if there's no resurrection? Why risk death if there's no resurrection? Apparently, he still doesn't think they get it. If you've read 2 Corinthians carefully, you know that chapter 11 brings an even longer catalog of Paul's suffering, the risks he took and the dangers he faced for love of Jesus. Starting in verse 23, he says, I faced far greater labors with far more imprisonments, countless floggings, often near death. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for the churches. That's the guy who says, I die every day. And why am I putting myself in danger if there's no resurrection? Right? My own people have tried to kill me. <laughs> the nations have tried to kill me. The sea has tried to kill me. I've been shipwrecked, adrift in the waters, beaten with whips, starving, hungry, cold, imprisoned, time after time after time. I lost count of how many times he used the word danger in that passage. And on top of all that, he says, I'm stressed out because I want my churches to do well. <laughs> and they're struggling, and I love them. And I just want to be able to help them grow up into Jesus and be fruitful. Paul understands the risk of following Jesus is worth it. Because the risk pales beside the reward. And the reward is resurrection. And if there's anything else, he's not interested. If there's anything else, Paul says, not interested. And so he wants them to make a choice. And it's a choice between self-denial and self-indulgence, isn't it? He goes into this next passage. He says, look, You've heard what people say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's kind of this attitude of, hey, we're not worried about the future. 
you know. Who knows what's next? We don't really know. Let's just have a party and have a good time and we'll eat. And we know from earlier in Corinthians, these folks, when they came together, they shared their meals and they really were, had some, of the, you know, some of them had a tendency to self-indulgence. They really enjoyed the fellowship a little bit more than the mission. <laughs> Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says, do not be deceived by that self-indulgent attitude. Bad company ruins good morals. Run with the wrong crowd, they'll drag you down. Come to a sober and right mind and sin no more. And then he says, this is striking. Some people have no knowledge of God. Like for Paul, he's saying to the Corinthians, if you Corinthians think that church and following Jesus is just about getting together once or twice a week, for fellowship and small group time and a good meal after church on Sunday and you have not reckoned with the reality that Jesus calls you to give up your life with the hope that he will raise you from the dead, if you haven't reckoned with that, Paul says, you don't know God. Wow, really? Wow, Paul. <laughs> you don't know God. And he holds out these two options, right? He exemplifies the life of self-denial and he asserts that they are living a life of self-indulgence. It's one or the other. And he sounds a lot like Jesus, unsurprisingly, doesn't he? Jesus is the one who says, if anyone wants to follow me, what have you got to do? Well, you've got to take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. Like self-denial is at the heart of Christianity. The risk that come with that. I'm not going to be in control. I'm going to trust Jesus. The hard thing about trusting Jesus is you never know what he's going to ask you to do. <laughs> he may ask you to go on a short-term mission trip. <laughs> you never know, right? He may ask you to share the gospel with a colleague. He may ask you to share the gospel with a stranger. He may ask you to pastor a church. He may ask you to move across the country. The scary part about following Jesus is you never know what he's going to ask you to do. But as we reflect on that, we begin to see that that fear of the risks is really a barrier to knowing Jesus. It's a barrier to growing in Christ-likeness. And it's really a barrier to holiness, isn't it? That's what, that's what Paul wants here. He wants the community in Corinth to be characterized by holiness. And all he means by that is, I want you to be like Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself for you. Now you count the cost and follow him. Paul says, I'm trying to show you what that looks like. I want you to be a part of the team. You know, you don't go to a cross because it's comfortable. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was primarily concerned with his agenda or his interests. Stunningly uncomfortable places those crosses are. You don't let people torture you to death because you don't have anything better to do. There's risk, there's danger. And that's the life of our Lord. 
And he calls all of his followers, take up your cross and die. The reason we can do it, the reason Paul has this expectation, the reason it's possible is because the risk pales alongside the reward. And the reward is eternal, embodied resurrection life. Now, Paul anticipates the next question, doesn't he? Verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? It's like, all right, Paul, benefit of the doubt. We don't believe in the resurrection, future resurrection yet, but we'll, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Why don't you just explain how this works out? How are the dead raised? Come on, hit us with it, Mr. Apostle. Let's hear it. Paul says, all right. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's funny, he kind of responds. <laughs> it's never good when the Apostle Paul calls you a fool. <laughs> but that's what he says in verse 36. Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of some wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and what begins to come clear here is that when Paul is thinking of this question, how does the resurrection work, right? We're talking about Jesus comes back, and this is what we mean when we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. We're talking about what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus comes back, he's going to raise the dead, right? The dead in Christ shall rise. You know it. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 is the other key passage. Bodies raised just like jesus on easter morning his body came out of the tomb that's what he's talking about but when jesus comes back it's not jesus gets raised that's already happened to him it's everybody who belongs to him so we're clear on that so he says look you want to you know you're trying to get your mind around trying to get the vision trying to understand there's two things you need to keep in mind the first one is that the resurrection body it is a body but it's a different kind of body right? the thing that goes into the ground is not like the thing that's going to come up and that leads some folks to wonder if these, these guys struggled with resurrection because they just sort of envisioned a bunch of dead, like a zombie apocalypse kind of movie or something, right? Um, I've read commentaries, and this is kind of what they think. Maybe the, It may have been the issue. You know, corpses kind of, of course they don't want to believe in that, right? It sounds horrifying. Oh, Jesus comes back and raises all these dead bodies, and they're just kind of wandering around looking disgusting and things like that. Paul says, that's not what's going on. Think about agriculture. You take a seed, you plant it in the ground, the wheat that sprouts up, it doesn't look like the seed, does it? It's different, right? You take a seed, plant it in the ground, the flower that blooms is glorious in a, in a different way. Right? Now there's continuity, right? Wheat seed doesn't produce apple trees, does it? Right? They've got something in common. Jesus, the body that went into the tomb, came out with scars, didn't it? It's not a different body, it's the same body, right? But there is continuity and discontinuity. When Jesus comes back and raises the dead, it'll be you know, a lovely flower compared to the seed that we experience now. It'll be more glorious, more beautiful, more real, more powerful. All those things. So he wants to help them see this relationship between discontinuity and continuity. The planted seed is not the same as the plant to come, but they are both of the same family. And he kind of, he, 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 he makes the point 
When he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, 42, what's sown is perishable, it's dying, it's decaying, what's raised is imperishable. What's sown is dishonorable, it's raised in glory. That's discontinuity, it's different. What's sown in weakness is raised in power. Power. So he wants to lay that out. The other thing he wants them to understand is we're talking about the God who is sovereign here. <laughs> right? God, verse 38, gives it a body as he has chosen. Right? This, is, this is one of those things where Paul wants to say, look, friends, um, at the end of the day, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, God's going to do what he's going to do. And the God who creates stars and planets and solar systems and trees and fish and mosquitoes and spiders and snakes and all the, the God who creates cows and dogs and continents and all those things... Don't think, he's, don't think this is out of bounds for him. Right? If he can speak and bring something out of nothing, raising the dead probably won't be that big of a deal. Right? And you can imagine the, 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 the questions. And, and what's striking to me is how the questions haven't changed all that much. It's very common for people to say, how does this work, Pastor? Like, what about my grandmother who was cremated? Like, we didn't bury her body. She was cremated. Like, how does resurrection work? What about somebody who maybe goes overboard in a storm, in a sh ship? I mean, they, they never get buried. They just, how does it work? And the answer is, <laughs> the God who makes something out of nothing isn't going to have a hard time getting the right parts in the right places. God can, he's God. He can do what he wants to do. And one of the things he intends to do is raise his people from the dead. We are dealing with a sovereign God whose will cannot be thwarted, whose plans cannot be, cannot be overthrown. And Paul has this spectacular vision of the creator, the creator who will also do new creation. He talks about different kinds of flesh and this just rich creativity of God. Not all flesh is alike, verse 39. There's one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. A lot of times when we travel with our kids, maybe we're in the mountains or down at the beach or something like that, we'll, we'll kind of stand on the coast of the Gulf and just look at the horizon. Think about all the weird stuff that's out there. Crazy things. I mean, I could never, I'm not creative enough to come up with that many different kinds, like some of those fish look weird. But they're all expressions of God's creativity and his sovereignty. He speaks, he creates, and he's just this, this, this vast, different kinds of things. You know, think about how many different kinds of trees there are. Oak trees, pine trees, magnolia trees. So many, God in his mind, he conceives of those things and brings them into being. So we love to spend some time with our kids and just say, hey, you know, think about how creative God is. Think about how, how much he loves beauty. How this, what you're looking at is breathtaking. Imagine how God feels about it. And Paul is trying to give the Corinthians this big vision of this creative, sovereign, loving, glorious, one God who is the creator of all things and the one who can make them new. Different kinds of flesh, there's different kinds of glory. The glory of the earthly and the glory of the heavenly. He talks about the moon, he talks about the stars, about all these things. If God can do that, 
and endow those with glory, can he not raise the dead? This is about the sovereignty of God, the creator, who takes what's dying, dishonorable, and weak and makes it imperishable, glorious, and powerful. That's the reward. Glory, honor, power. That's the reward. Paul says the reward makes the risk worth it every time. And that only leaves one question, doesn't it? What in us needs to die today? Paul says, I die every day. He's obviously not talking about his physical death. <laughs> that only happens once, right? Now, that moment when you die and your heart stops beating, that, that doesn't happen every day. So what's he talking about? He's talking about self-denial, isn't he? He's talking about, I've got preferences, I've got expectations, and I've got to put those things to death. There are places in my life where maybe I'm not surrendered to Jesus. I've got to put those things to death. Now, every day, so that I can be completely his. Completely his. Paul says, that's, the, that's where we are, folks. One question, what is in me that needs to die right now? C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He said, the principle runs through, through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes, every day, the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have, excuse me, let me put it, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Nothing in you, listen to that, nothing in me that has ever never died will ever be raised from the dead. What needs to die? Maybe it's ambition. Oh, you got plans. Jesus is on board with the plans. <laughs> we hope. If he's not, we still got plans. Gonna take the world, gonna climb the ladder, gonna make the advancement, gonna do, get the right salary, get the right titles, find the right, all ambition. Am I in control? Or is Jesus in control? I wonder if Jesus is saying, hey, can I have that right now? Are you willing to die to that so that I can give you life? Because as long as you're in control, there's no life there. Unforgiveness? Maybe there's that colleague or maybe a family member, maybe a spouse. Maybe somebody in, <laughs> in the church. <laughs> Unforgiveness. I just can't let go of what they did to me. What they said hurt me. How they behaved has it's just created this immense pain, and I can't, I will, I won't let go of it. I wonder if Jesus is saying to any of us, it's time to die to that unforgiveness. 
That's death. I'd like to make, I'd like to give you life. But you see, when we die to those kinds of things, it's risky, isn't it? As long as we're holding on to it, I'm going to do it my way. I've, I'm calling the shots. We're in control. And there's, there's not as much, it doesn't feel like there's as much risk when we're in control. And if we let Jesus have it, there's no telling. I'm going to have to be civil to that person. <laughs> Jesus is in control. I may have to say no to something lucrative. It helps me climb my ladder. Never know what he's going to do if he gets in control. Maybe I've got some expectations. Maybe I've got some preferences. And Jesus is saying, are you ready to let me have those? I need you to die to your expectations for church. I need you to die to your expectations for your marriage. I need you to die to your preferences for what you thought your life would look like. And it, you know, Maybe you're say, Jesus, I didn't expect my life to look the way it looks. I expected it to look like his or her life looks. We do that sometimes, don't we? I didn't expect to have to walk. I didn't expect to have to grieve like this. I didn't expect this. And Jesus is saying, I know. Are you willing to die to that expectation so that I can put some life into that place? So I can reproduce my character? In that place, in your life. Fifteen or fourteen, fifteen years ago, I went to a licensing school and beginning minister school. Something if you want to be a pastor in the Methodist Church, you got to go to. Went down to Blue Lake and uh, had several days of classes and seminars. You know how to do a wedding, how to do a funeral, and things like that. How, how to organize a church. One morning we, we gathered in the chapel. Some of you have been to the chapel in Blue Lake. Kind of looks out over the, over the water. Cross right there. And we went around in a circle and we had to sort of share our testimony of our conversion, how we met Jesus and our call, how he got us called to ministry. I was one of the younger folks there, probably about 25, there were a number of people who were there who'd already been in the workforce for 20 or 30 years. And several times, more, it struck me how often I heard the similar story. I got called to ministry when I was in college, they would say. But I had plans. I wanted to climb the ladder. I wanted to make some money. Wanted a vacation home. Didn't want to move around. Didn't want to take my kids out of school. All these kinds of things. And I was running from God's call on my life. And now I'm here. Finally going to die to that. And surrender it to Jesus. And the thing I can't help but think about is of all the folks in the room and just say, say you have five people who put it off, put off, put off surrendering to Jesus for 20 years. That's 100 years worth of time. How much fruit do we not have in the kingdom of God because of that? How much have we lost 
because of the times all of us have said, I'm not ready to be surrendered to you yet, Jesus. Who hasn't heard the gospel? Who missed out on what Jesus has to offer? Because we wanted to be in control. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm about to pray. And I'm wondering if you'll pray with me. My guess is the Holy Spirit's speaking to some of our hearts, hopefully all of them. I guess there's at least a few of us that can feel the Spirit with his finger on something. I need you to die to that today. I need you to yield control. I want to give you life. I know it's risky. But the reward I have for you far, out, far exceeds the danger and the risk.